What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Arnie's. We are three couch potatoes with nothing better to do. I'm your host, Austin Terry, and I'm joined by my best pals, Matt Johnson and Keith Baker. Guys, how's it going? It's going good. Happy to be here. Let's talk about some underrated movies. Matt, how you doing? I echo what Keith said. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I am also well. Well, before we get into the episode, I think we've got a little bit of some quick housekeeping to do. Keith, Matt, I think we've got a show to talk about. Don't forget, everybody, we are watching The Mandalorian Season 2. We already covered the first two episodes, and next week we'll be covering Episode 3. Matthew, tell them who we are. Well, if you caught the beginning of the episode, then you would know that we're the Arnie's. Um, Austin did a great job introing, so that answers that question. But... I think what Keith is referencing is when we review The Mandalorian, we are no longer just the Arnie's. We become something else entirely. And that is the podcast crew within the podcast. <sighs> the Mando's talking the Lorian. And I don't like the title still. This is something I've had to deal with since we started this podcast within the podcast, but I'm still proud of where we're going, and it's a great show, so you should probably check it out. Yeah, those episodes drop every Sunday, so if you check your feed right now, we just put out The Mandalorian Episode 2 on Sunday of this week. All right, well, let's go ahead and get into the show. Today, we're going to be talking about some movies that we think are overlooked and don't get the credit they deserve. In many ways, these movies resemble our humble podcast, great performances, fun characters, and for whatever the reason, have flown under the radar of society. Matt, give us some thoughts so we can get into it. Yeah, this was tough. Um, just for the sake of this podcast, this episode, I mean, we only picked a couple just so we could actually not do a, you know, 10 hour show. But yeah, so this was tough, just picking two. So I'd be curious to hear what helped you guys choose the ones that you actually did instead of something else that you thought was underrated, maybe. I think the two I went with are just two that I kind of think about quite a bit. Um, they're movies that I've gone back to multiple times and I've seen a bunch. And so I just I just love talking about the two movies I picked and, and decided to talk about them here. Yeah, for me, these two movies I just happened to rewatch recently, like maybe in the past month. And so when I was going back to thinking what movies I'd watched recently, those two were the ones that came to mind that really didn't get that much recognition, in my opinion. So Kind of in the same boat. Just two movies that I really like. I think both, um, just by kind of coincidence, are kind of sci-fi-ish. So I guess that's kind of the one tie I do have. But other than that, it, it was a long look through to see which ones I could pick. So I think maybe at some point in the future, we'll have to maybe do a part two of this episode and pick a couple more movies just because there are so many great underrated movies out there that I, I know we'd all have to talk about, but I think we have a pretty good lineup today. Everybody, if you do want us to return back to this segment and talk about some more underrated movies, shoot us a message on Instagram at the Arnie's and let us know. All right, well, let's get in to the bulk of the episode today. Matt, why don't you start us off with your first underrated movie? 
Cool, yeah. So my first movie is Cloud Atlas. This was a 2012 movie directed by the Wachowskis of, of course, Matrix fame. And they also went on to produce big hits like V for Vendetta, for example. So this was them back in the director's chair. Also, they were joined by Tom Tickler this time and had a huge cast starring Tom Hanks, Halle Berry, Jim Broadbent, Hugo Weaving, Jim Sturgis, Duna Bay, Ben Wishaw, Hugh Grant, and somehow there's even even more than that. Um, all that being said, despite all the talent behind it, it was a commercial failure. It was received pretty well at the time, but it did not make a lot of money back. It, at the time, and it could honestly even still be today, it was one of the most expensive indie films of all time. It cost between 100 and 150 million to make, and it only made 130 at the box office. And then just a fun little fact is the author of the book, David Mitchell, wrote this book and I believe both he and just the general audience that was a fan of the book considered it to be unadaptable, basically. Like nobody understood how this could be made into a medium outside of a book, basically. But after seeing the film, Mitchell actually ended up praising it as, quote, magnificent. And he was even impressed with the changes the directors made. And before we get into it, just so anybody out there, if you've ever thought about watching Cloud Atlas before I get into all the stuff I love about it, it is on Netflix. So easy to watch if you have that. So maybe go check it out based on what we talk about. So that's my first one. Yeah, the only thing I really know about this movie at all is that I've heard it's three hours long with very little payoff. So as someone who is championing this movie, do you think it needs to be three hours long? Or do you think there are segments that could have been cut? And is there a good payoff if you make it through the entire three hours? I think this is coming from somebody that I don't know. I mean, we've done a few episodes on this show talking about long movies. Now they think about it, some of the Star Wars, some of those DC movies, to name a few. So we've talked about a lot of long ones. And I think even, honestly, there's probably a few examples on this show of me talking about other movies that stuff just shouldn't be that long. Like, there's just so often stuff that can be cut out, like, so blatantly, at least to me. But this is kind of a weird one. This might be my exception to the rule, because this is three hours, and so if you're going to watch this, you need to set aside some time. And it is it is dense, so it's one that I wouldn't recommend splitting up into pieces. But I kind of think it needs to be this long, because it's essentially juggling six different storylines and it's non-linear so it's not like the book for the book for example would basically tell you one story move on to the next one and then keep going and then once it reached the halfway point it would revisit each story again but this the movie itself is just jumping back and forth between each story just um multiple times but the cool thing for me is where so does it not get jumbled by doing that yeah yeah like, so is it hard to follow and that kind of ties into the payoff question you asked. Like, there's, is there payoff at the end? And I think maybe the first time you watch it, it is like, it, you do have to pay attention. Like, okay, what's going on? Wh- which storyline is this? Okay. Might, might take like a few seconds to kind of like reintegrate yourself into the current storyline. But I got to say, I mean, I've seen this movie probably four or five times. Jeez, that's 15 hours. Yeah, I get something new out of every watch. And there is payoff. And the way they maneuver through each storyline, they jump back and forth with purpose each time. After it goes on for a while, you really do realize, oh, they're not just jumping back to like 
change it up or get variety. Like they're, they're jumping back to continue a certain theme that was picked up or just like a character beat that was like just happened in a different storyline and they keep it going. And somehow at the end of this movie, they tie together six stories that happen over. I'll get into a bit more of this in a bit, but they happen over completely different timelines with completely different characters, seemingly unrelated and the way at the end it ties it all in a bow and this theme of love and just human connection and all that. I don't know how they did it, but I mean, I cried at the end whenever I first watched it. And like, there was like some teary eyed moments throughout, but once it actually got to the end and I understood what they were trying to say and kind of, I so I mean, just to use the same word, what the payoff was, I was like, wow, it really hit me. And every time I've watched it since, I just get something new out of. So yeah, weirdly, I think it somehow works better being kind of this long three-hour epic. And I certainly do think that there will be payoff for those watching it. Nice. Well, do you want to tell us like one or two of like your favorite things about this movie? Sure. Yeah. So like I mentioned, kind of the whole, I suppose, gimmick of Cloud Atlas is there are six storylines and... I mean, they're just completely different. For example, the first one, the earliest one, is just about this lawyer who's at sea trying to get home in the early 1800s. And that's – there's a lot more to it than that, but that's pretty much the story. And then Does you have one Does it all take place in the 1800s or is it spread off across multiple time, time periods? Yeah. So when I say um, six different stories, it's not like – I guess a lot of – it's not like, um, for example, like – crash which is like following different stories and characters but in the same time this is yeah so like i said you have that 1800 story you also have one that takes place in like 2100 uh cyberpunk south korea you have one that takes off takes place in the who knows what it is the it's so far in the future that people barely speak english anymore they have a broken language and they're being hunted in the woods and stuff like that by other humans and uh, yeah so it's they're completely crazy and different and i think it works because it's so jarring like how are these even remotely related to each other so it makes it even more interesting when you find out how by the end but anyway yeah so like i was saying I, I'm trying to think of an example, but I feel like with stuff like this where you have characters interacting and different kind of storylines like this, it's kind of predictable how they might interact. And it's like, like, for example, whenever you first watch it, you go, oh, maybe that character is related to the next storyline's character. Like, that's how, you know, they would be intertwined. But I really like how this movie does it. Like, for just to give you guys an example without spoiling the movie, or for example, but like, like I mentioned, that 1800 storyline with that lawyer. So he's at sea, ends up getting really sick for unknown reasons, and starts journaling his experience, essentially. And then almost 100 years later, in a different storyline, a young pianist is working for a composer and is struggling to kind of come up with his masterwork. And while just roaming around the grounds, he ends up finding the journal of the 1800s lawyer at sea, and his story of his complicity to slavery and eventually joining the abolitionist movement is kind of his inspiration to, to create this beautiful piece of music which in turn becomes a very small success that a character in a different storyline hears and gives her familiar feeling. And then one little bit, because I don't want to spoil how, you know, the actor is playing, but just given one example here, in this case, 
uh, the character is played by Halle Berry, who's playing, who played a different character in that pianist story that heard it while it was being composed. And now she's also playing the character that walks into a store and just hears it playing and is like, oh, this sounds familiar to me. So this kind of, this kind of gives you guys and the audience out there some of the ways that these stories interact and how the different actors playing parts kind of, uh, play a role into the actual story itself. And I think as the movie goes on, that those connections only get interesting and certainly more moving from there. That pianist piece almost sounds like something out of, have you guys seen the show, the OA on Netflix? It recently got I canceled, s- but yeah, I saw the first season of that. Yeah. That show also takes place across a couple different time frames, but there is like an overarching mm. uh, violin theme that plays throughout mm. the show. And it's, it's a very beautiful piece of music as well. Yeah. No, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. So the last thing I'll say before anybody else wanted to jump in. So I just think, I guess I've already touched on it a bit, but this film is just, to me, just an absolutely, it's absolutely masterful when it comes to storytelling and structure. The way it maneuvers through six time settings from the early 1800s to the far far future while still somehow connecting all these characters, motivations, themes, and feelings of human connection and love is just astounding to me. The cast, like I mentioned, play multiple characters throughout these stories, and it actually has a purpose. Like, they're meant to embody various stereotypes across different time periods, while sometimes defying those roles and sometimes, unfortunately, being a bit of a slave to it. And at times, you know, they just play seemingly random supporting characters, but it's kind of cool because in a lot of cases, it's against type, and it gives them, through CG and makeup, a lot of the cast to play different races and genders. Uh, The directors actually referred to this aspect as the, quote, continuity of souls, which I thought was just a really kind of badass term but just for example it's pretty cool seeing america's sweetheart tom hanks playing a a brief role in one of the stories as a violent british gangster so yeah (laughs) yeah so the score and the main theme along with that also feature in each story like we talked about and kind of helps with the passage of time so so with it being so expensive where does it seem like that money went did it go to these big name actors or is it like a visually well-made movie like does it hold up over the years what do you think that's a good question. I I would have to assume it's just because a lot of it, especially in the later storylines, does rely – it's not like it relies on CG. I don't think it does, but a lot of the backgrounds, for example, like they completely build like a city essentially. Um, it's just very vibrant backgrounds that I think rely a lot on CG. So I think the visuals are a big part of it, but they do still hold up. Like it's only – I guess only is kind of a weird term for CG because we've talked about movies on this show that came out a few years ago that already don't look very good. But yeah, it came out eight years ago. And for me, it really holds up. There's some bits of like makeup on actors and then using some CG to help with that that looks a little iffy now. It's like, eh, it doesn't look so good. But other than that, like the actual visual aspect of the movie in terms of the backgrounds and action and some of the stories really holds up for me. So I'd, ha- I'd have to imagine that most of the money just went to creating those worlds, similarly to what the Wachowskis did for The Matrix. Uh, there's lots of similarities there. Um, yeah, I-, I don't imagine it-, it was like an actor's thing, but it's just such a huge production. Like each of these six stories feels like if they had spent more time with it, it could have been its own movie. So the production value of each of these stories is kind of through the roof. So... I would have to imagine that's kind of where a lot of the money went, unfortunately, leading to one of those classic instances where if you're going to spend that much money, then you got to make a lot more at the box office. So they weren't able to do that. Where do you think this movie got lost with people? Mm. Do you think it was the storylines that was just like too confusing for people to follow? Or was it the length of it? Maybe people just got bored with it? Yeah. Why do you think it tanked at the box office? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's hard to say. I think I like I remember when the Comic Con trailer came out and it was a huge hit. It was one of those things that people saw. It was just like this three minute plus trailer, which was kind of a lot longer than the other ones you were getting. And I was like, what is this? This looks really interesting and really compelling. And honestly, it, it was exciting. But it was one of those things where once the movie comes out, you just don't go see it. And I don't know. I, it got decent reviews. It didn't get great reviews. So I think maybe that was part of it. Maybe you're intrigued by one of these trailers when the movie comes out and it's like, oh, you know, you kind of got middling reviews and maybe I'll just wait for it to come out. Um, I think that was part of it. I was actually like reading what some of the cast had to say about the movie. And it, it's pretty, it, it was actually a really interesting read. The entire cast just gushes about the movie, even now. Like someone just recently asked Tom Hanks in an interview his thoughts on Cloud Atlas. And he was like, I don't watch any of my movies. I just am not one of those actors. I've seen Cloud Atlas like three times. I get something profound out of it every time and something new. And like all the actors just gushed about it. Hugh Grant was the one that said that he just thought it was an absolutely amazing experience. Loved working with the Wachowskis. But uh, he, for him, he was like, anytime it seems like I worked work outside of light comedy, it just has a hard time finding its audience. And he thought Cloud Atlas was no exception. And I think it's just hard to sell. Um, I think like, the, the trailer certainly sold some of the like love aspects that happened in some of the stories, but I mean, there's so much other cool stuff. It's like you, you go from a love story to like a cannibal chasing Tom Hanks in like the year 3000 plus in the far future or something like that. So there's just so much going on. I think maybe if it had been like a TV series, maybe in some ways it could have been an easier sell. That's what and I was going to say. It seems like with this many storylines, it'd be more suited for TV than a movie. Yeah, I think once you guys check it out, you might understand why they went movie form. But I think I think to answer that question, I think it's just it was so hard to sell it. And once you spend that much money, you got to make you got to find a marketing team that can somehow do it. And it, no discredit to them, because obviously it was a hard task, but it just couldn't really find its audience. It didn't do great in theaters. And then after that, it kind of just didn't even it's not even one of the things that became a cult hit. I don't think I don't really think people really found it even after the fact. Um, it does sound like finally going to Netflix within the last couple of years, it's, it has started to find a, find an audience. That's where I discovered it. And um, I think it, like a cult audience could be forming and people are finally seeing it. Netflix, the, you know, people make fun of Netflix, but the one thing it does do is you can see movies that you never would have seen before because it's like, oh, I can watch it at home now. So I'll do that. And so, I, like I said, I'd recommend people check it out because I think now it can be a time for it to find its audience. It can't make its money back, but maybe, you know, it can at least give people enjoyment that it was trying to all those years ago. All right. Well, I have another sci-fi movie to discuss and mine is the 2012 Dread with Carl Urban, Olivia Thirlby, and Lena Headey. Um, I know this is technically a remake of the 1995 Sylvester Stallone movie. However, from what I understand, um, it sounds like this movie focuses more on the comic book aspect of the Dread series rather than that movie specifically. And I think it is a totally original story. So I, I guess you could call it a remake. I'm not going to for the purpose of this episode. Um, this movie takes place in the distant future. Um, in the large city of Mega City One, which is uh, kind of like America has ended for the most part. And now there's now only thing left is this sprawling city that stretches from Boston to Washington, D.C. Um, and with this many people confined in the walls of this one large city, the only people enforcing the law are these, uh, I guess, pseudo police officers called judges. And they have the power to be judge, jury, executioner on the scene. 
Nice. Yeah, I remember you. I think you and I saw this in theaters together, Austin. If I'm correct, I just to be honest, I can't really remember much from it. But I do remember there being some really badass action sequences with him chasing down people and all that. And that's about all I can remember. So it's a pretty simple story. Um, the judge, the main judge, played like by Carl Urban, gets paired up with a rookie who's his first day, and he's administering an assessment to her. Um, her name is Anderson, and basically they end up trapped in this one really large uh, apartment complex and they have these mega skyscrapers in this movie called blocks and it's like 200 stories and there's tons of people packed inside this one building um, and, and eventually they end up trapped in this building and uh, the leader of the crime syndicate that controls this building is called mama she's played by lena hetty of game of thrones fame um, she locks down the building makes the outside world think they're running through like a blast test drill um, and then they're stuck working their way up level by level um, until they can finally uh, get to the top level and face Mama. Um, and so they, they lead to some really tight moments. They somehow find a way to make this really drab setting uh, beautiful in some ways, like with the action. Um, it's kind of hard to explain, but this building like has an opening all the way down the middle. So there'll be camera shots where they're, they're fighting across uh, across the building. And you'll see like these really cool flashes of light, um, the way they angle the shots. And it like lights up the building. And it's just – it's a really well shot and well-made movie, I think. Yeah. I remember – wasn't there something in there called like the – you might have said it – the slow-mo drug yeah, or whatever? Yeah. So that the, slows things down. So the Mama Gang uh, is the manufacturer of this drug called slow-mo. And um, it's kind of a weird mechanic because it, it literally just leads to an option for them to use slow motion technology. But every time somebody inhales this drug, it slows everything down for them. So like sometimes the way they kill people is they they dose them with slow-mo and then toss them over the edge. So it makes the fall down to the center feel like an eternity. And they're just like kind of stuck suffering on the way down. Yeah, I really like this movie, man. I think it's just really badass and yeah. really fun. So in a weird way, though, just like... Like we just talked about with Cloud Atlas, I think that's a movie that may, like just now, eight years later, be trying to start building some type of audience or a cult following, if you want to put it that way. Whereas Dread, I think, has what seems like it's almost had one since the movie came out. It was such a hit with both critics and, and the, the, the you know, I guess the smaller audiences that did end up seeing it. But people have been demanding sequels and TV series and spinoffs and all that crazy stuff this whole time. So... Would you want to see any of that, or do you think this movie works better as kind of just a one-off standalone? What do you think? It's kind of weird, because I think this is a great standalone movie. Um, however, I do I do love Carl Urban's performance as the as Judge Dredd, and I think um, Olivia Thirlby as Anderson is also, also gives a great performance here, too. Um, they do kind of end it with like just tying up the story, and they'd leave room for a sequel, but it doesn't require a sequel, I don't think. Um, but the way this movie is made and shot, I think if the original cast and crew returned, I'd totally be down for a sequel. Uh, well, how do you think this movie like relates to other like underground sci-fi sci-fi movies like Blade Runner or Tron, all those kind of movies? Do you think it like stands alone as as its own unique thing, or is it or is it really similar to those? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, aesthetically, I, I kind of get some Blade Runner vibes from this film. Um, however, I think for the actual sequence of events, I really get more of the raid uh, from this movie because yeah. they are stuck in this apartment complex fighting up level by level. But then soundtracks, oh, soundtrack yeah. wise, I get Tron for sure. I think I also think this is a really underrated soundtrack as well. I almost put it in, in our movie scores bracket back when we did that episode as well. Yeah, I actually had to really go back. I had the same thought with Cloud Atlas. <laughs> Whenever I was watching that, I was like, how the hell did I not put this in our movie scores? <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I think this movie does have like a really cool, it takes a lot of the best elements from a lot of other movies and really makes it its own somehow, which is certainly appreciated. And I think, and I kind of touched on this earlier, but one of my really favorite aspects of this film is the fact that it is Anderson's first day and Judge Dredd is giving her an assessment. So he sets up the rules like, uh, if you make a wrong call, you fail. If you lose your weapons, you fail. Um, like any, all that sort of stuff, he sets it up. But then throughout the movie, he's constantly having to say, Anderson, what's your judgment? And then she has to read out a piece of the law and give an, give an order like ISO cube or, or this, this warrants execution. Um, so because they have to do this throughout the movie, it really doesn't, doesn't cause it to feel like they're just overpowered police officers. Like it, it makes them feel like they are, they are actually legislators, but then they also kind of, they know how to work the dynamics of both angles as well, if that makes sense. Yeah. I haven't seen it in a while. I definitely need to rewatch it, but I do remember there were some actual interesting aspects to the whole policing. Cause it certainly could have just been really gross. The whole judge jury executioner thing, like, how am I supposed to root for these people? But at, at the very least, they're not villains, or at least they don't seem like they are. Maybe if they had done sequels, they could have got into that more. But yeah, I think you're right. They do actually do what policing is in this world, which is obviously a whole thing. But at, at least it wasn't like, this person walked in front of me, just like shoots them in the head. It's not like that. <laughs> yeah. like, it's not that kind of judge jury executioner. At least this world, I guess what I'm saying is at least the world had rules that they stuck to, which was certainly, I think, made it better to watch. And they kind of established those rules too in uh, in the opening scene. There's, there's an opening scene with a car chase and dread on a, on a motorcycle. And he's yeah. he knows that these people are uh, manufacturing some drugs, so he's chasing them. But he doesn't use any lethal force until they run over a pedestrian. And then he radios mm-hmm. back to HQ and says, they just ran over a pedestrian. I'm now going into lethal force. And then he takes them down afterwards. So like right off the bat, they set up these rules. And then I think they do a really good job about sticking, them, sticking to them for uh, the rest of the movie. Nice. Nice. And then also just the aspect of this being stuck in this apartment building really does lend to some really tight, tense moments. Um, there's some hand, there's some great hand-to-hand scenes. There's really cool shootout scenes. One of my favorite scenes is the mama game ends up setting up three Gatling guns on the other side of the floor across from them, and then they shoot out across this opening. It levels an entire block of this building. But then the way they the way they film it, there's so many different angles that. Uh, while they are, you know, causing so much destruction, it still ends up looking really beautiful just because of the way the lighting pans up and down the building and, and the way they use camera angles here is just so cool, I think. I completely agree. Honestly, a movie like a lot on this list that I think just impressed and it, and it kind of became more than people expected. Like the cinematography in particular was just insane in, in like a really great way. And I think on the surface, it just seemed like it was going to be this dumb, cheesy, fun action movie but it was so much more than that for sure how was how was uh carl urban's performance in this i can't really remember him too well from it he's he's really good um i think just by the way the character is designed because he has this weird helmet it really yeah. kind of could have been anybody in this role yeah um he uh like he doesn't have to do anything extra with the character um and the way judge dread is is he's just this like stone-faced guy who's really bought into being a judge so he doesn't really have a whole lot of character arc to to go with um but for, for what carl urban's given i think he does a great job and th- this yeah. movie also did lead to one of my favorite exchanges on twitter in the recent couple of months i don't know if you saw this but um, Duncan Jones, who directed that shitty Warcraft movie, tweeted at Carl Urban saying, I think Josh Brolin would make a good Judge Dredd. To which Carl Urban replied with a screenshot of the Warcraft's Rotten Tomato score, which was a 28%. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Duncan Jones. Hmm. Not so good anymore. 
<laughs> Moon was cool, but that's about I think it. he did Source Code too, that weird train movie. Oh yeah, he did. And then he did oh, Warcraft, yeah. and he did that. that did that movie Mute on Netflix? Ugh. Suffice to say, most of his movies would not make my underrated. Uh, list. Mute was Mute, Mute was weird. Movie. Mute was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. We'll talk about shit movies another time, but <laughs> yeah, Dread, yeah. definitely, like Austin, definitely recommend to people that haven't caught it yet. I want to rewatch it now, now that we've hyped it up. It's not going to break any awards or, or shatter the way you think about filmmaking, but you're going to have a good time for an hour and a half, so. Let's get into The Grey. So, let me ask first, have you guys seen this movie, The Grey? Mm-hmm. I've seen it once. I have. I've seen it probably two, maybe three times. Yeah, so Liam Neeson plays this... I guess you could say, like, Canadian guy, I think. Um, or, no, Irish guy. He plays, like, an Irish guy in say, Ottawa. I mean, he can be Canadian or in Alaska. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Liam Neeson is still... I don't know what. Yeah. It's hard to tell sometimes of them. <laughs> <laughs> he play, yeah, I guess he plays an Irish guy, but his name is kind of Canadian. Anyway, he plays <laughs> this... Uh, oh, you're explaining. I gotta look it up now. I gotta look up what his character's name is. You go ahead, though. He plays this sniper who... Uh, Pretty much protects this like oil refinery in Alaska uh, from like wolves and other animals from attacking the workers there. And so him and some other workers, I guess, they get on a plane and, and they're commuting back to their, their hometown or home cities or whatever. And the plane hits a storm. It crashes in the middle of the wilderness. And then one by one, they're being pretty much like picked off by these crazy Alaskan wolves. Like, just these scary, beastly wolves. And they're picking them off one by one. They're going through the woods. They're starting fires. They're, you know, they're falling off cliffs. I don't want to give away too much if you haven't seen it. I don't want to give away, like, too much of what happens. But that's basically the gist of it. I just thought this movie had some good acting in it overall. Liam Neeson, I think, you know, people give him a hard time. because Sometimes they just think of, like, Taken and all that. Um, But I thought he played a pretty good part as like the leader of this group and i think the other actors uh frank grio did a good job of playing diaz and you have dermot uh mulroney and you have dallas roberts from the walking dead yeah it's almost like a hard r uh they call the wild yeah exactly it's not your typical wilderness movie it's like i you can almost maybe describe this as like a horror movie in a way there's definitely a lot of like jump out scares yeah I, I definitely remember when i first saw this movie being really surprised at how tense it makes you feel and how you kind of are on edge throughout this whole movie um and it is it is also just like kind of a fun survival story as well because liam neeson is forced to go through um the elements these animals like you said and and he doesn't really have a whole lot of supplies so he's kind of stuck on his own in the alaskan wilderness yeah and all these and i think it's like it's pretty realistic of how a lot of these guys are you know they're all just scared and pissed off and you know and maybe in a normal normal movie they would all get along but this movie he definitely shows them like fighting and being angry and some of them are just giving up on life you know we, we do see some of them just like just not wanting to go on and they just stay with stay where they're at and, and they let the others go on so i thought it was a pretty realistic uh, point of view if something like this were to actually happen like a plane crash were to actually crash in the middle of alaska yeah no absolutely i think this is just such a awesome movie and i think similarly i guess this is kind of just a thing with underrated movies i think part of it is you're probably at least to some degree surprised when you see it i know i was certainly surprised because i don't think i was alone here but i feel like this film almost famously 
had just such a silly trailer and maybe it's just because of the concept but it defied like preconceptions made because of its trailer and at the time you know january release dates were just like a dumping ground for bad movies so everybody made fun of it it was like the liam neeson wolf movie but it turned out like we said to be a pretty big surprise so in what ways it's like do you think this film took a really goofy premise and made it something like serious emotional violent satisfying all those things I guess because they were all just fighting for their lives, really, and yeah, and some and a lot of these guys, it was kind of like established from the, from the beginning of the movie. A lot of these guys were kind of fucked up people too, like alcoholics, divorced, you know, didn't have a relationship with their kids. Liam Neeson, his wife had passed away, so he was constantly like dreaming about her, and that was kind of a, a like a frequent underlying theme for him. Like he was trying to. You know, fight for his life at the same time. He was also ready. He was ready to die as well if he had to. Like he was, but he was fighting. I think he was fighting more for the guys that he was with more so than himself. Because there was definitely some times where he was like, "Fuck this! I I give up. Like just kill me. Like he was just gonna let the wolves have him." But I don't want to give away the ending. But y'all know what happens. I think this film also does a good job of uh, kind of getting you to buy in from the very beginning. Like you can, they do a good job of setting up the stakes of where they crashed. Um, and then also, like you said, Keith, everyone here is battling internal demons as well as these wolves. Um, so you do kind of find yourselves rooting for a lot of these people. Um, and then also at the same time, buying the stakes and buying the fact that they are this, are in this really strenuous, dangerous situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. And yeah, it also did a really good job of showing how it really is out there. Like we have it pretty cushy in, you know, in our cities that we live in, but there's still, it shows like how wild the world still is in some parts. Keith, as you know, we're kind of a big fan of ranking things on this show, especially mm-hmm. with our Star Wars rankings. We always get a little contentious there. If you had to rank this movie among Liam Neeson movies, where would you put it? Is it better than Phantom Menace? I don't know. What the fuck do you mean you don't know? <laughs> oh my God. I can't compare it to Star Wars. But he does play a good Qui-Gon Jinn. He does play that a good movie. Well. Blows ass. Do you like the character of Otway? John Otway, John famous Otway Alaskan, or the Jim. Canadian Irishman. <laughs> yeah, I think we can. I, think uh, I like this character a lot. Um, thank you. But I don't know. I think I think I would like it better than the Taken one. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Is it better than Phantom Menace? Say yes or no. We'll move on. Okay. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> So my next one, got another sci-fi for you. We're going back to the 90s for this one. So we're going to do Gattaca. This was directed by Andrew Nichol, starring Ethan Hawke, Uma Thurman, Jude Law, some other fun people scattered throughout. So this is one of my favorite sci-fi films. And not only that, I think it's a lot more accessible than something like Cloud Atlas. So whenever people ask me for random recommendations, I usually throw this one out there. I don't really know why. I just really like it. And for whatever reason, I want other people to like it. So I, I usually recommend this one. But this is a pretty cool movie. I don't want to say too much about the plot because the way this movie is structured, I feel like I feel like you can preserve a lot of the story beats if you just watch it. The bare bones plot is Ethan Hawke plays this character, Vincent, and he's always dreamed of going to space. Unfortunately, he lives in a world where people are less and less being bred uh, naturally, and they're kind of just being um, 
created through eugenics and just taking bits and pieces of the parents' genes and just, you know, making them better. Like you kind of like eradicating disease, making sure they live as long as possible, making them just genetically superior in most ways. Like Krypton and Man of Steel. Yeah, honestly, yeah. There there are elements of the whole Man of Steel <laughs> Krypton aspect. Yeah. Um and so that's kind of the world we live in here. Unfortunately for Ethan Hawke's character, he was bred naturally. So he's he's supposed to die early. He's prone to illness. And I guess kind of like in the real world, because of that, because he has all these issues, they're not going to let him go into deep space, right? So that's his dream. So the movie kind of follows, once he decides to leave home, kind of like, how am I going to achieve my dream? What am I going to do to be able to put myself in a position to work for this company, Gattaca, which can send me to space? So that's kind of, that's all I'll say. Because I feel like if I say more, it's just going to go... It, it it could ruin elements of the viewing experience, and of course, I'll I'll say that he meets characters played by Uma Thurman and Jude Law along the way, who are both genetically superior um, characters in this world. And it's kind of the movie goes into his relationship with them being somebody that isn't, and how he can communicate and befriend them in certain ways that might be to his benefit. So that's all I'll say. So that's kind of the plot. I've never seen this movie, but I did check out a few trailers before this episode. And yeah. maybe it's just because of the way these trailers were shot. Um, they do have that really cheesy voiceover that they used to do for 90s movies. Um, but I did get some serious minority report vibes from this movie. Um, does it do anything to kind of separate separate itself from these like late 90s sci-fi movies? Or, or does it run in the same vein as those? Yeah, um, I've only seen Minority Report once, and I didn't love it. Uh, but... I think I think what I like about sci-fi like Gattaca, and I think the way it sets itself apart, and I think, honestly, it's the reason, probably my favorite thing about it, is because at the very beginning of the movie, they just say that like, at, like a, they have a title card that says, the not-too-distant future, and then the movie just starts. And the fact that this, you know, future, they don't ever say when it is, they don't give a year, but now we're in 2020, this movie was in 97, somehow... This future feels relatively realistic considering when it was made. Like it's a universe where missions are going to space daily. Like I mentioned, babies are being bred for perfection to live longer and hopefully eradicate disease and genetically superior donors can offer their cells, their cells and, you know, lifestyle aspects in a sense to those created naturally as a means to let them live a different life. So none of that stuff, especially when you watch the movie, feels too far out there. It's definitely the future, but it kind of feels extremely possible. And the fact that they set a story in that kind of sci-fi world is what separates itself from me. Whereas I feel like a lot of movies in that time and, and just in general, when it comes to this genre, really just go balls to the wall. They go completely out there, which I love sometimes, of course. But I think this more realistic down-to-earth aspect that feels timeless in a way. When you even like I said, when you watch it now, all these years later, it somehow feels still like, yeah, it's just the future that's just slightly far off. And I love that. I love that they're able to make a movie like that. So do you guys kind of prefer that? more realistic sci-fi that feels attainable like me or do you like more the just crazy uh just completely out there stuff i think when it, i think it depends if it's done well when it, whenever yeah. they go all the way out there and it's done super well i, I love that sci-fi that kind of makes that makes you rethink the way you think things but then also yeah. when they find a way to make it grounded like movies like 
the Martian or Interstellar, like whenever it does kind of Ex feel Machina a little bit grounded. Also comes Ex to Machina, mind. yeah. Yeah. Um, whenever it does actually feel grounded in reality and it feels slightly achievable, I think that kind of is where people get inspired by sci-fi. Um, mm. So I, I like both aspects of it. I think it just depends on how it's done. Absolutely, absolutely. I was going to say, yeah, I'm with you, Austin. Yeah, it does. It just depends if they do it right. Sure. It could be something like this that's more realistic, and then you can do something like. I don't know. Well, like Star Wars, I guess, which is pretty out there yeah. with some of the stuff they do. Mm-hmm. And that's like on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, you never know if you're uh, transporting some ladies' eggs across the galaxy. Oh, some frog ladies' check eggs. Check out yeah. The Mandalorian season two, episode two. <laughs> we just dropped for more on that. I uh, I also watched some trailers for this. It, this one, yeah, I feel like this movie would make you think as lo- along those lines of is this an, is this possible? And it kind of has that theme from like the boys too, with like Compound V. Uh, you know how everything's kind of you know there's always like an underlying reason yeah that's my it's my favorite aspect of of the boys is is it is somewhat grounded in reality of, of how uh how superheroes would kind of play out in our world with the way our media is and the way corporations are yeah because they're yeah. genetically created and modified similarly to the i suppose what you would call the elite in the world of gattaca so yeah there are so there are some cool similarities but um, another element, and I know you guys know me well enough to know I love when stuff like this is injected. So everything I just said kind of sounds like it could be a movie on its own, but they add a lot of really interesting stuff that kind of isn't necessarily just sci-fi, which makes it even of a cooler watch for me. So kind of in the midst of all this cool stuff, we still have a film with a central murder mystery and absolutely amazing character development, interaction, and reveals. But the film follows a nonlinear structure of him leaving home, starting this menial career, and trying to find a way to change his fate so he can achieve more than he was ever meant to. And like I mentioned, he meets Uma Thurman and Jude Law along the way, and although they play genetically perfected characters, in certain ways, they weren't able to achieve that high level that is set aside for the elite. So like, they were bred to be the best, and they're finding themselves not quite at the top so what does that mean for them whenever you have been told all your life that you were supposed to be number one kind of this interesting aspect especially how vincent played by ethan hawk is somebody that was supposed to be the worst and is he going to be able to rise to the top through his own action which i thought was just this really great theme and it, and it led to some amazing interplay is there like an actual villain in this film or is it more of ethan hawk working against the circumstances he was born into there is an antagonist Definitely not a villain, definitely not evil, but there is a one character in particular that, especially as the movie goes on, I guess you could say, in some aspects, stands, could potentially st- stop Ethan Hawke from achieving what he's trying to. But definitely not evil, definitely not a traditional villain. And yeah, I think most mostly what we're watching is him trying to achieve this dream, so aspects of him not being able to and him falling short could uh, in a way kind of become the more actual villain of the movie and so yeah i just love that this movie deals with mystery defying fate through incredible personal effort and sacrifice great character moments like i mentioned and while these elements aren't always necessary or even present in a lot of sci-fi i really do appreciate that this movie kind of makes an effort to do more and say something about achieving your dreams which again i like when they take just I guess a lot of sci-fi and even other genres do this, where they take just these standard messages, but really kind of repackage it and repurpose it into something really beautiful that makes sense in its own genre. So do you guys appreciate when stories do more than just fitting into their genre? Yeah, I kind of do, because if every sci-fi movie just stayed within the sci-fi realm, then 
they would, I think they would all kind of start to feel similar. So I kind of appreciate when movies would go for it and try to expand the genre by bringing in inspiration from other genres as well. It's kind of like what we talked about with Dread, where um, even though that is set in a sci-fi world, we still get elements of like uh, the raid in that movie, which isn't a sci-fi movie. It's just kind of more of a, a beat-em-up action film. So I kind of appreciate when movies take inspiration from other sources and blend it together into the story. I think it's just cool because like... Uh... In a lot of sci-fi movies, they focus on the world and the world building in a lot of ways, whereas this one does that too. But it also gives you this really human character with like the most human goal, which is like our main character is just trying to achieve his dreams and the world he lives in, the way he was born, he isn't set to do that, obviously. Ethan Hawke is a white man, so I, I want to say that there are connections to real life here, but not really because he's white. But um, <laughs> but uh, you guys know what I mean. It's like he's trying to do everything he can to – he wants to basically be – he wants the advantages of the elite so that he can achieve his dreams as he can otherwise. And it's like how is he going to do that? So there's just such like a, like a rooting for aspect for this main character and this crazy sci-fi movie happening in the background, which feels so different to me. So it's one of the things I love about it, like I mentioned. So before we move on, I got to ask, this is a 97 movie, and you know I'm not a big old movies guy. How does it hold up? Is 97 old now? <laughs> it is now, yeah. I guess, um, I guess. Especially for a sci-fi movie. But how does it, how does it hold up uh, visually-wise, dialogue-wise? Does it feel cheesy now, or does it still hold up if we watch it today? Definitely not cheesy. The dialogue really holds up. I mean, it, it's really mature, a lot of the stuff they're talking about. And like I mentioned, the story itself, him doing anything he can to... Um, achieve this goal like what lengths will he go to and the fact that it's kind of in a non-linear structure kind of like oh okay so like you know some answers before you get the actual reasoning and how it happened which is kind of cool so but yeah in terms of how it holds up actually kind of similarly to cloud atlas it's not like a lot of the budget went to making things look cool if that makes sense like there's not a lot of action or anything like that it's just a lot of the cg and a lot of the visual effects go into the background but even then it's just they took modern technology and just made it look a bit different in a way they just like you there's a lot of sets in this movie a lot of it feels practical um so yeah i think it i think it holds up in that sense because it's not like there's just a lot of shitty cg or anything like that and the character stuff certainly holds up so yeah i i think i think pretty much it really did. Like I, like I said, the, the really cool thing about Gattaca is now we're 23 years after it came out. And at the beginning when it says in the not too distant future, it's like, OK, like you're, I'm going to have to like, you know, um, suspend my disbelief because obviously it won't feel like that anymore. But when you watch it, 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 it I, I, the first time I saw it was in high school and it always felt, oh, we're going to be there in like five years. Um, and then now watching in 2020, it's like, oh, we're like five years off from the guy. <laughs> it's cool that it, it's kind of timeless in that way. There are some like silly moments, like for example, like in their office, their computer stations, I think in the future, they would be like these huge screens and they still have cool elements, but ultimately they, they kind of do feel like, like keyboards ish at that time. So it is kind of like, okay, that doesn't really hold up, but it's just little stuff like that that they couldn't have known or helped, but definitely would recommend this one as well. So check it out. All right. Well, the next movie I want to talk about is 2013's The Way, Way Back. Uh, this film stars Steve Carell, Tony Collette, and Sam Rockwell. And then we also have uh, Liam James in the lead as Duncan. Um, and this is actually a, a pretty simple story. We The main character is Duncan, like I mentioned. He's a young kid, probably like 13, maybe. Um, his mom, Pam, played by Tony Collette, is dating Steve Carell's character, Trent. And their small family is uh, getting to go 
is on their way to spend uh, the summer at Trent's uh, beach house um, on, I think it's the coast of New York. So, so Trent is kind of a jerk to Duncan, but he, he does it whenever Pam isn't watching. Uh, so his mom doesn't really see kind of the relationship that they have. Um, and like, for example, the movie opens up with uh, Duncan and Trent having a conversation where uh, Trent asks him to rate himself. Uh, Duncan says, oh, maybe I'm a six. And Trent goes, I think you're a three. So that's yeah. kind of how we how we establish their relationship. Um, and it is really a simple story. Uh, he's stuck, you know, in this beach house with this shitty mom's boyfriend. Um, he's got a family living next door who um, also has a divorced mom raising these two kids who she's kind of more of a nicer character, but she is kind of like drunk all the time. And she's also kind of a dick to her youngest son. Um, and it's really just up to Duncan to kind of find a way to make the summer uh, what it can be. And he ends up uh, working at a water park with Sam Rockwell's character, and they have they kind of develop a relationship throughout the summer as well. Yeah. Also, before we move on, quick correction for you, Austin, that I know you guys will appreciate, and I know I certainly appreciate. But this movie was not, in fact, filmed on the coast of like New York or wherever. Do you guys know where this was filmed? Well, they say Albany. Oh, they do. Yeah, I know where I do know where it was actually filmed, though. Maybe that's where it takes place, but it was filmed on the Cod in Cape Cod. Oh, I yeah, because I I thought it looked familiar when I was watching the trailer. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, spot. it de- definitely does. I guess they filmed there, but I think they still say they're in New York. Okay, okay, yeah. So Austin, Keith, and I have been to Cape Cod a lot, so we like it there. So <laughs> that's nice. the only yeah. connection. Nice. I did recognize that. But yeah, that it, it definitely lot. does. While while I was watching it for this episode, I was like, man, that looks like the Cape. But yeah, anyway, anyway, yeah, you're, you're completely right. I remember, I think Austin, I think this is one of the ones that I think maybe you and I just saw this one in theaters, maybe when we were like, not only for the summer or something. Go ahead. Not only did we see it in theaters, but we got the entire theater to ourselves right. to watch this it movie. It was completely empty. Not yeah. a single other person there. That's right. And we had a fun time. <laughs> Which is why it makes that underrated list. <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah, we just sat at the top of the theater. We just like talked out loud, like laughed along to it and was like, yeah, it was like really cool. It was like we got to, like our own commentary, <laughs> but we still got to really enjoy it. And yeah, you're right. It's yeah. totally a feel good movie. I've got, I've seen it like a couple more times since then. And yeah, it it still holds up. It's so like you laugh along with it, like you get teary eyed and the moments where he stands up for himself. You're rooting for him. And then when you watch other characters being assholes, like you just, ah, oh, they're so gross. And yeah, it, just, it, 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 it gets you like emotional, right? Where the kind of emotional that you're supposed to be. So it's just perfectly done. I feel like. And he is, he is kind of in like his awkward, uh, you know, puberty phase. So he doesn't yeah. really know like how to stand up for himself yet. He doesn't really have a lot of confidence in, in himself. And he slowly gains that throughout the movie. Um, Pam is oblivious to the way Trent and his friends are. And um, you can just really feel the f- feel for the kid being stuck in the situation. And, um, you know, he, he really does do the best he can with his situation. Yeah. So, since I haven't seen this movie yet, oh. just looking at the trailers and the clips, it kind of like reminds me of like a younger version of Adventureland. I get why you would say that because of like the water park aspect of it. Um, yeah. But from what I remember, Adventureland is more of kind of like a college comedy. Um, and this one, yeah. this one really isn't that. It's more of kind of like a feel good movie with some really funny elements. The movie I kind of get from this is actually Kings of Summer because it is mm. these, you know, these younger kids kind of stuck dealing with their, uh, you know, kind of shitty parents and they're just doing the best they can with, with what they can. I think that's an apt comparison for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so Sam Rockwell, he plays like the mentor kind of character. Yeah. So Sam, Sam Rockwell is, uh, is the owner of this water park and he just right from the get go, like. He's he's so nice to Duncan. He just he's really witty. He's really funny. Um, 
he's just I think this is really one of Sam Rockwell's best performances he's just he's so charming so heartwarming and I really couldn't imagine another person in this role in this film yeah me neither he's perfect in it I think this even though this was like a, like a small hit in an indie for whatever reason this one kind of broke him as an actor I feel like he had been doing great work before that and then uh, he did something big like Iron Man 2 but for whatever reason like yeah the way way back is seems like that kind of role um he got a lot more of that kind of stuff after this and got to do some other cool indies and then eventually doing stuff like three billboards and vice where he gets awards contention. So yeah, I think this was a big one for him. It was one of the, like, I feel like probably one of the first movies I'd seen with him at the time. And then whenever, like I went back to his filmography, I was like, Oh yeah, I saw green mile. Oh yeah. I saw this and that. So he's been working for a long time, but he was just so great in this. It always feels like he kind of slipped under the radar, like in being like, big Hollywood famous like people know who he is and all that but he's not you don't think of him as being like the A-list A-list um but he's a great actor though he's been in a ton of movies oh yeah I kind I kind of like that he's just uh I think he really just takes the parts that interest him and so maybe that's yeah. maybe that's kind of hampered his rise to A-lister but everything he's mm-hmm. in I think he's great in and so I, I kind of appreciate that about him is it really seems like he just does the movies that he thinks he's gonna have fun making yeah, I, yeah, I, I get that vibe. And at least now he's getting like the awards attention that I think he rightfully deserves. So he can still do cool movies like this and TV shows. But I think it's nice to know that other people are noticing what he's doing because he's great. So this was also a time when uh, Steve Carell was kind of trying to break away from the Michael Scott persona of The Office. Um, this He did this movie kind of right after he left The Office. Um, and so you do kind of get to see a, a new type of role from Steve Carell in this film at all, because he does play a villain and just this guy who is really just so really despicable throughout this movie and the way he treats Duncan and, and even the way he treats Pam at times. So it is it is also a unique role to see Steve Carell in as well. Yeah, it was jarring at the time, like you mentioned, because even even then it still wasn't too far off from his work on The Office. And now he's gone on to do just some incredible work. I mean, Foxcatcher and beautiful boy like he's done lots of dramatic work and he's yeah and this kind of was the start of that career arc for him i think was this movie yeah yeah i mean like look at people like jim carrey robin williams adam sandler people always use i feel like those three Kristen wig as well people that do comedy usually means something is broken inside of them and that they can do dramatic work really well and it was really cool to see steve carell uh make that transition because he's really just a fantastic actor very well rounded and the fact that not only is he in a more of a drama but that he was playing basically the villain and just so gross like ugh, like he was perfect in it he was so good and just hated him <laughs> so this is uh i might be putting you on the spot here keith but since we are talking about the office i think this is a good time to check in on <laughs> keith's office binge keith wow. how are you doing on the office what season are you on and are you still enjoying it I, I'm guessing he hasn't been watching it. No, not true. I recently picked it back up. Yeah. I did take a long break from it. I knew I was it. watching The Boys <laughs> mm-hmm. and watching other movies and all that. But uh, I did watch a few, eh, more than a few, probably five or six episodes the other day. So I think I'm on either the end of season five or early season six. I can't remember. You wow. You've made That's some good progress far. from our, our binge episode when you said, I've binged the show, but I'm only on season one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I binge season one, but yes, I know what you mean. Uh, yeah, it's been a slow binge, but it's going along. Good job, Keith. Good for you. I'm happy for you, Keith. You. 
Alrighty, so yep, Matthew, you mentioned Kristen Wiig earlier. I did, Keith. Are you about to bring up a Kristen Wiig movie? She is in this movie, ah! The Secret Life of The Secret Life of, of Kristen Wiig. Oh. So Austin and I have both seen this. Matthew, you have yeah, not seen this. Yeah, this is this, the correct? only one on the list I've not seen yet. Just a quick summary. Uh, ben Stiller plays a guy named Walter Mitty. He works for uh, Life Magazine, and he's in charge. I guess you can say he's in charge of putting all the uh, the pictures together for the magazines, especially for the cover photos and all that. And so, one day, one of the cover photos goes missing. Um, he's looking all over for it. The photographer, played by Sean Penn. He's like the wilderness photographer, so he's always out in the elements. You can never reach him um, if you need to get a hold of him. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. He's like the the National Geographic kind of guy. Anyway, he's always out. He's the one who sends the pictures to him, but the last picture for the last cover goes missing. And I'll, and I'll say the last cover because in the background of all this, Life Magazine is switching to digital, so they're not doing yeah. actual paper magazines anymore. So Adam Scott's character comes in. He's kind of like the evil guy. He's cutting. He's just he just plays a dick. Yeah, he's in charge of kind of the the transition phase of from print to digital. Anyway, so Walter is missing this last picture. Um, he needs to go find it, but it, he's the kind of guy who lives in his head all the time. He's always just kind of daydreaming, and um. He'll he'll be walking down the street and imagine himself like saving somebody from a burning building, and then he's just and he just comes back too, and he's just still just standing there, just on the street, like just yeah. in his head. And it's so cool, Matt, because because these daydreams lead to like like literally a mundane scene of him walking down the streets, then cuts to what he's picturing in his head of him running through this building, saving this person, diving out the window. Um, like it's, or even when he's interacting with Adam Scott, it'll be a really boring scene of just back and back dialogue. And then it cuts to him, like beating the shit out of Adam Scott, throwing him out a window, like, and then it cuts back. So it, it leads to some really cool, um, imaginative scenes throughout this movie. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And so he's kind of just a scared, nervous guy, but he has to go find this picture. So he eventually, um, leaves or the he meets this girl in the office i forgot about that he meets this girl in the office cheryl who's played by Kristen wig and she's kind of the one who tells him like go like go find it go go track down sean who's played by sean penn and um go track him down and find the picture and that kind of gives him like the boost he needed from her so he gets on a plane and he goes to uh i think greenland first and he's there Trying to, he's talking with people, trying to find Sean because Sean does not have a cell phone or anything like that. So yeah. it's just like it's just word of mouth. He's just asking around, and it's really cool too because because there's a transition of from like normally all the stuff he would be imagining in his head, he actually starts doing in real life, and that there's this really cool transition throughout the movie of now he is actually doing the stuff he dreams about uh, on a day to day basis. Yeah, and so yeah, he gets on a helicopter, uh, falls into the ocean, and so from there he just he's just going from like. One crazy scene to another, just doing all these crazy, um, like stunts, like jumping off a he- like, like I just said, jumping off a helicopter. He, what else does he do? Austin, he goes on a skateboard. He like backpacks. He backpacks through Afghanistan, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. He goes backpacking, and he's like, so he's asking all these people, um, like, have you seen this man? He's trying to find Sean still. It's so good. It's just such a good adventure movie. Um. And I, I'm so glad you put this on here, Keith, because if, if you hadn't put this on the list today, I would have been talking about it earlier. So, I, I, this is one of my favorite yeah. movies. Yeah, it's it's great. Um, what I really liked about it was like, is the character of Walter. I think Ben Stiller played an amazing character with him. Like, 
he's just really relatable. I think all of us can kind of relate to that in a way of like just daydreaming, imagining, you know, imagining us doing something like crazy or wild. Yeah, especially if you've ever had a job that you don't like. Like you can certainly relate uh, to Ben Stiller's character. Yeah. Personally, personally, I think this is one of Ben Stiller's best movies, and and I think the reason for that is he's not playing a typical the typical eccentric character that he does tend to play um it's more of just a down on his luck regular guy um so why do you think this movie gets overlooked with such a talented cast especially like someone like ben stiller in the lead i don't know maybe 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 that's why it gets overlooked because it's not his normal thing yeah you kind of see him doing more comp comedies like tropic thunder and meet the parents meet the fokker or zoolander and- Zoolander, yeah. So this is kind of a little bit of a different twist with him, kind of like we just talked about with Steve Carell. Um, they kind of just went in a different direction. So maybe that's why it gets overlooked, or I don't know. Maybe maybe it wasn't maybe it wasn't marketed right. I'm not sure. But this movie was really a badass, uh, especially with all the the scenery and all the different locations he goes to, like Iceland, like we said earlier, Afghanistan. Uh, he goes to the Himalayas. He's watching Sean Penn's character fly on a like wing walk on a plane. It's just so many cool. It's so cinematic. It's yeah. It's just so visually pleasing and, and so cinematic to watch as well. Yeah, it just makes you want to travel. Like that's the main thing yeah, I get I out agree. of it. Really, it's like it makes you want to just drop everything and just go travel. Yeah, I saw trailers for it when it was coming out, and I thought about going to see it, and just never got around to it. Um, I believe it came out around the holidays, like a. Like maybe around it did. Christmas. It came out so, in, I think, December. That's always a risk with movies like this. I, I think they probably thought this would be the feel-good movie people would go see, but I'm sure, it, what, in 2013, I'm sure there was some huge movies coming out around then that people are going to go spend their money on or take their whole family to go see. It's not going to be this one, and I'm, that might have been why it didn't do so well. I know you're a big Ben Stiller fan, that, so I think you'll really appreciate this movie. Yeah, I do love Ben Stiller. I love his comedy. I love when he plays a bit more damaged characters like Royal Tenenbaums and I know when he whenever he directs sometimes especially more recently he's been directing a lot more serious stuff like that series with Paul Dano and Benicio Del Toro and Patricia Arquette the Escape at Dinamora so he seems to kind of he's kind of an interesting guy when it comes to picking projects and this one certainly seemed like one of those where it was just so different but it sounds like I mean the fact it sounds like the whole travel aspect and the kind of being in a menial job and just want to get out of it and daydreaming and all that good stuff resonates with you guys. I know that stuff like that would resonate with me too, but I noticed uh, just looking at looking it up because like I said, it was the only one I hadn't seen. I was like, I want to, I want to look up a little bit about it, but I noticed the tagline was stop dreaming, start living. So I want to know like, how does that resonate with you guys? And you think that really is embodied with the movie itself? I think for sure. Yeah. That's the whole point of his arc is he, he was always dreaming and never doing anything about it. And then he finally takes the steps to improve his life and, and do what he wants to do. And, and it is a really great culmination of the film, I think. Yeah, I think that's a good message. So I think that's something that would, I would really dig as well. i got to check this one out. Yeah, the main message of the movie really is like just to get out of your comfort zone and try something new. Yeah. I mean, uh, Austin, you probably remember this. Like, the, I think the main scene that really uh, represents that is the helicopter when he gets on the helicopter. Yeah. He gets a lead on Sean of where to find Sean, and and he needs to go to this boat that's out in the middle of the ocean. Well, the only way to get to that boat is by a helicopter. That there's a drunk guy that flies a helicopter, and he's like, "Well, I'm going out there to get to the boat." And he's like, "He's like, you coming?" And he's like hesitating, and the guy starts the helicopter and is, and, and is starting to take off, 
And then he eventually just like, he stops daydreaming and he just runs to the helicopter and jumps on it. And he's like gasping for air because he can't believe he actually did it. And he, and he got on. The music so swells. Cool. And then that's kind of where the movie really starts to pick up with uh, him actually following through on what he wants to do uh, kind of for the rest of the film. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're just about ready to wrap up today. But before we can get out of here, we've got to do some Arnie's Podcast Awards. If you're new this week, this is a segment where we give an award for anything in this episode. Keith, start us off this week. I had a few in my mind, but this one probably won't be too funny. I'm going to go ahead and give the Best Wing Walker Award to Sean Penn. Nice. Wow. I love that scene in, in um, Secret Life of Walter Mitty. thought that was badass, so I'll give that award to him. Awesome. I'm so happy for Sean Bean. Being- I'm also happy Sean Bean uh, doesn't get his head cut off in this movie. Well, the that's Sean Penn. Was it Sean Penn? <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> this is worse than when Austin was convinced that Ewan McGregor spent 12 years filming Boyhood and not Ethan Hawke. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I don't, I, don't, I don't know why I'm the one in charge of knowing actors' names on this show. <laughs> I should not be doing that. <laughs> Sean Bean. What a guy! It's really, it's really not the guy from. I was convinced it's the guy from Game of Thrones. Not even close. I mean, Ethan Hawke and Ewan McGregor, I can kind of get. Look at the picture of Sean Bean. It's not him at all. Oh man! All right. Well, I'm going to give an award to some drugs. I'm going to give an award to the slow mo drug in Dread, and it is the best excuse to use slow motion technology. Just tossing a drug named Slow Mo in your movie and then you gotta use it. Yeah, pretty blatant, but definitely cool. Nice. <laughs> All right, Matt, go ahead and close us out today. Are you gonna give Sean Bean or Sean Penn an award? Ah, well, they both deserve one for sure. But well, I would love to give an award to Cloud Atlas or Gattaca, because those are the movies I picked. And like I said, everybody, go check out Cloud Atlas on Netflix. Go check out Gattaca. Just go rent it. They're both great. You'll have a great time. I can't, unfortunately, give an award to either of the movies I picked because it has to go to the person that deserves it most. Not Sean Ben. Sean Ben. Jesus. Not Sean Ben. <laughs> not Sean Bean. And not Sean Ben. I just combined Ben and Bean. <laughs> Damn it. Um, my award today is, of course, the one that we've seen many people receive throughout their lifetime is the most damaged by star wars award and this one's going to keith because for some reason he couldn't decide who is the better character between qui-gon and the guy from the gray and then he also (laughs) couldn't decide if the gray was better than the phantom (laughs) so i like look i like star wars but i think keith Maybe maybe more damaged than we thought, guys. <laughs> I got I got I got to get. I think this after award. we get through our uh, Star Wars series, we might all three of us uh, deserve <laughs> that award. We all we all might need this one. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, so Keith is now in the lead among the hosts for most Arnie's podcast awards. Um, after Solo last week, we were all tied. We all had one, but now Keith is in the lead with two. Why? What oh, did we have man. with Solo? You gave yourself the number one Solo fan, so that one went to you. A few yes. weeks ago, I got the most accidentally sexual award. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, about a month ago, Keith got... Um, Didn't I get three awards? I, th- I think Keith got like all of them one week. 
Yeah, that is true. Actually, I am wrong. Keith is actually in the lead now with five because he got three awards in one episode. It was uh, the number one John Williams fan, the biggest John Williams hater, and then (laughs) the most disappointed in the outcome of a show. It all went to Keith. Yeah. I think Keith Keith is like the Jack Nicholson of this show, the Meryl Streep. He's just picking them all up and leaving us in the I know. We got, we got to get our act together, Matt. I know. This is gross. This is gross. All right. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you hit that subscribe button so you never miss any of our upcoming content. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing us with a friend, that really is the best way to help us grow the show. At The Arnie's is our social, and thearnies.media is the website. We'll be back on Tuesday for the finale of our Star Wars series. We'll be talking The Rise of Skywalker, and we'll be joined by some special guests, Nick and Martin from the FN Nerds podcast. Can't wait. Can't wait. The Star Wars series will finally be done, and at least we'll have some good guests to accompany us along the way. <laughs> but in the meantime, <laughs> if you're looking for more Star Wars, like I mentioned at the top of the show, we are reviewing each episode of The Mandalorian as they come out. Those episodes should be out every Sunday, so check your podcast feeds, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Play, wherever you get your shows. Like I mentioned, we'll be reviewing each episode of The Mandalorian we just put out this week, episode two, so take a look. Because episode three will be coming out next week. And check us out on Instagram at the Arnie's. Feel free to direct message us your thoughts on this episode. Star Wars, Skies of Sky, uh, Star Wars, Sky of Skywalker. Sean Star ben. Wars, Rise of. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to direct message us on your thoughts on this episode. Uh, Rise of Skywalker coming up. Mando episode three, the last and the, uh, the last two episodes of Mando we covered. After listening to this, send us um, your you know most underrated movies you got going on. Yeah, and if you've seen ours, what do you think of them? Let us know if we made some good picks today. And don't forget, if you send us a message, no matter what you say, we will read it on the show. So send us a message, and that's going to do it today. We'll see you next week, everyone. Go watch Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas.